You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today we are reading out of the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 through 42. And if you've picked up a Bible that is now on the info table as you walk in, that is on page 776. So Matthew 21, verses 28 through 42. Here we go. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe him. Now hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into, into, into another country. When the season for the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the word of the Lord. All right, please pray with me. Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for bringing us together to worship and to learn more about you. We pray for Casey as he preaches this morning. Speak through him, Lord. Open his heart to know what you want him to say and open our hearts to hear what you want us to hear. Thank you, Lord, for Central Middle School. Thank you for this building and the partnership that we can come and worship with you each week. Please bless, please bless the administration, teachers, students, families, and anyone who comes in this building, that they will feel your peace and, open, and be open to your love. We give you this day, Lord, and we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Casey. I'm one of the pastors here. And, uh, man, we're so glad you're with us. And we are back in Matthew. Um, and so we took a little break from Matthew. And some of you are like, man, we have been in Matthew for over a year. And you're right. We have been in Matthew for over a year. But we're in the last part of Matthew. And we're going to get to the end uh, eventually. Actually, we're going to get to the end on Easter with the resurrection. We planned it. Um, and so there you go. But as we step into this uh, next part of Matthew, this is actually the fifth book of Matthew. 
And so the book of Matthew is actually broken up into six sections, and so five books. And what you see in Matthew is you'll see an interaction that Jesus has with people, and then a group of teachings where he's explaining what happened in that interaction. And so just look down at your Bible. I want to show you a few things. And so the first thing is like, we, we didn't do this yet. We're going to come back and do this as we're coming to Easter. But in verses 1 through 11, you see the entry into Jerusalem. And so Jesus comes and he's riding on a donkey and the people gather around after all the miracles that he's seen. And they're wanting him to be the Messiah who's going to overthrow Rome, who's going to usher in an era of peace that brings the Jewish people up on top. And so they all gather around and they quote what Jesus quotes in this section, Psalms 118. They start quoting, you know, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. I mean, all the people are gathering around. And so then the next section, if you look down, what you see is Jesus enters into the temple and he kind of starts just kind of raising some havoc. He comes in, he doesn't like what he sees, and so he starts flipping over tables, he starts throwing people out, and the Pharisees and the religious leaders come and they say, by what authority do you do this? And he goes and he teaches just a little bit. He says, this is my father's house. It's meant to be a house of prayer for everyone to come and encounter my father. And so they question him again, by what authority? And what happened was Jesus starts to heal a blind guy and a lame guy. And that kind of establishes some authority. I mean, the, the blind guy's like, I'm with Jesus. And so, you know, he starts to raise up havoc. And so really we have two sets of people. And so one set of people, kind of uneducated, not the elite, they come around and they look at Jesus. And they say, something is special about Jesus. And then you have this really educated uh, religious group that look at Jesus and say, what gives you the right? Who says you can do this? And then if you look just a little bit further, you see Jesus curses the fig tree and uh, it dies. And he curses the fig tree because it doesn't have fruit. And, and in that, it says it has a bunch of leaves, but no fruit. And like later on, the teaching comes out when the disciples said, he said that about the temple, a lot of activity, but it wasn't producing fruit for the king. And so then Jesus enters into a theme, like a favorite story theme. He tells stories about two sons. And so this is a theme that comes up quite a bit. And Jesus had stories that he would tell often to explain ideas. And it's probably like the Sermon on the Mount. These stories would come out often. Or Luke 15, another story about two sons where you have the younger son who rejects the father, runs away and squanders the inheritance. And it says on prostitutes and things like that. And the older brother who stays home and you know, says, I've never done anything wrong, but doesn't love the father. And so we see another here of two stories where Jesus comes and he says, let me explain to you what happened. The people who were yelling, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The people who are quite put together and then the religious people who reject me. And so we have two stories. And, and so the stories people like to tell. Like if you've known someone for a long time, like in your new social setting, like you can almost predict the stories that they're going to try to work into the conversation. The stories they like to tell, because the stories we like to tell, tell something about us and they tell something about what we love or something that we like to convey a message about. And so if you've known me long, uh, I like to tell stories about my children being born. And not for the typical reason of like, oh, it's the greatest day of my life. For the selfish reason of it undid me. 
And, and so I, I feel like it's important. It's also important for men. We got men out there who are about to become first-time fathers. You need to know what you're walking into. It might undo you also. And so when I like to tell these stories, like, first off, I just want people to know that Kinsey's my wife. Like, I peaked early in life. I want people to know that. People who meet me, they assume I'm rich, but I'm, I'm not. I'm a pastor. And so just blessed. Um, <laughs> And so I, I want people to know, I want people to know that my expectations are usually wrong. Like, you know, when, when we had Quinn, uh, Kinsey woke up in the morning and she's like, I think we're having a baby. I jumped out of bed and like, I mean, I was ready to go. I was like, we didn't have a backpack. We don't plan early. And so I was like, oh, we got to grab stuff. And then she said, I'm going to take a shower. And man, it confused me. I was like, that's not how the movies do it, you know? And so she took a shower, like blue dry her hair. I went back to bed. I was like, well, if she's not panicking, I'm not going to panic either. Uh, and so my expectations are wrong. But then we get there. We kind of casually drive there. And we get there. And we casually walk in. And, and we get there. And I'm like, my expectation is, man, I'm going to be with Kinsey up, you know, just be I'm using my gift. I'm going to encourage her. I'm going to hold her hand. And the doctors are going to do everything that's down there. And I'm just going to hold her hand. And that expectation was shattered when out of the ceiling, headlights and a mirror came out and like, there is no escaping what's going on here. And then I want you to know, you don't have to cut the umbilical cord. On Quinn, Dr. Laura, she bullied me into cutting the umbilical cord. She said, the men like to cut the umbilical cord. And I was like, well, clearly I'm a man, so I'm going to do that, all right? And then I learned you don't have to. And so every other child, like, hey, would you like to cut the umbilical cord? I'm like, no, I'll pay extra. You just do it. And so I want you to know like the expectations of what you're walking into. And I want you to know things about me. Like I love being a dad. Man, I, I love seeing my kids experience new things. I want you to know things about me. I can't handle blood. So if there's an emergency with my kids, get Kinsey. I can't handle it. And so we come to a story, a theme that Jesus tells often about two sons. And, and so look at that in verse Verse 28, it starts off. He says, what do you think? And he says, what do you think? So he's like, I'm going to tell you a story, and I want you to think about how you fit in the story. I want you to think about, do you like the story? Do you like how it goes? Do you like how it turns? Is it representative, or do you not like it? And so he says, what do you think? He says, a man had two sons. And so this is the theme. Like, the man has two sons. Jesus has a lot of stories about two sons. And there's a good son and there's a dirtbag son, but Jesus usually flips it where the son that you expect to be the good son rejects the father or rejects the kingdom or rejects him. And the son that was wayward and that was rude and that cared nothing about the father changes his mind and is accepted by the father. And so he starts off, there's a story about two sons. But like this idea of two sons isn't just a story that Jesus likes to tell. The idea of two sons is a story that the Bible likes to tell. And so we see these stories and they come out in places like Genesis 4. You have Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. Murder. It's a dirtbag move. Write that down. And then you have stories that unfold like a, a Genesis 25 where Jacob tricks Esau. And then Exodus 4, like Exodus 4, listen to what God tells Moses plainly. He says, tell this to Pharaoh. And so Exodus 4, verse 22, it says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. 
And I say to you, let my people go. Let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And so suddenly we see other stories, and these are true stories that unfold about two sons. And so Jesus is telling us a story, and both stories that we see here have sons. And so look at verse 28 through 32. The the, the first story is, you know, you have this crude son who ends up obeying, and then you have this polite and proper son who never gets around to obeying. But then the second story, in verse 33 through 42, you have an owner's son. And that owner's son comes and he's wrongfully and savagely killed by the tenants of a vineyard who it says they want the vineyard for themselves. They don't want to be under the owner's authority anymore. And so they murder the son. But both stories, like look who both stories are told to. So look look back at verse 23 before this section. All of these stories are told after Jesus had just cleared out the temple and he had healed people in the temple. And they said, by what authority do you accept the praises of these people? Do you know what they're saying? They're quoting David from Psalms 118. That's about the Messiah. Do you know what they're saying about you? Or what gives you the right to flip tables and tell us what to do in church? And so it comes in in verse 23, he looks at him. In verse 23, we see these names. They're the chief priests and the elders of the people, and they're questioning by what authority. And so all of this, he comes to say, let me tell you about two different kinds of people. Let me tell you a story about two sons. And, and so what we see is this is going to tell us, Jesus is trying to say inside of us, there is a murderous desire to own our lives. We don't want to be tenants. We don't want to be told what to do. We want to be in charge of our lives. We want to take the natural resources of our lives and say, man, I just want to do like, you know, I had two older sisters. So it's like I had three moms and my son has three sisters. So like four moms, everyone's trying to mother him. And man, I see it happening. We're like, don't tell me what to do. And he says, there's something inside of us that wants to take ownership of our possessions, our things, our relationships our bodies. And then it goes on, not just a murderous desire to own your lives. Inside of us, there's a deep, sometimes dormant hatred of grace. Because grace says we're not good enough in ourselves and we need help from the outside. And so Jesus, he's bringing this all together in two stories, and he's going to tell us that we war against the grace and ownership of God. And so we're going to look at at just two points. And so two sections, we're going to look at bad sons, and then we're going to look at bad tenants. And I wanted to throw in bad blood, not mad love, but that's Taylor Swift joke. So I wanted to throw that in, but it didn't work. And so here we go. Bad sons. And so what we're going to see in the first at the base level is bad sons must change their minds. And so we're going to see the buttoned up, proper, smooth talking son rejects the father while the rude, insolent, insulting son changes his mind and pleases the father. And so how do you please God? He's saying you have to change your mind about me. You have to change the direction of your life. There has to be a time that you switch your life around. There has to be a moment that you say, I choose Jesus. 
And so all of this is about one side is saying, Hosanna, and the other side is, who do you think you are? And he's saying, which son will you be? And so let's get started. We're going to start off with the rude and insulting son who pleases the father. So look at verse 28. We start over. It says, what do you think? A man has two sons. And he went to the first son and said, son, go work in the vineyard for me today. My commentary, or one of my commentaries, it translated this part like this. Off you go, my lad, and work in the vineyard today. He was trying to convey like a gentleness, a relationship that the father has with the son, but also there's an authority. He doesn't say, hey, do you want to do this? Like today, did you have plans? Can you postpone them? It's an imperative. It's asked, but it's asked in a gentle way, in this sweet way. Off you go, lad. Go to the vineyard today. And so we have this uh, specific request, this specific point, and then verse 29, and he answers, I will not. Now, that doesn't bother us that much because we're Americans. I mean, like the idea of turning to your parents and be like, I'm not going to do that. Like where you think, well, yeah, sometimes you have to do that. In Jesus's day, like everybody would have whispered, like, I will not. They're like, oh, man, you got to kill that boy. I mean, he needs to be dead. I mean, everybody would have been like, No, nobody says that. Nobody looks at their father and says, I ain't doing it. I mean, off you go, lad. No, no one does that. Man, this is a long time ago, but uh, Eddie Murphy, don't watch it. Uh, He had a comedy routine, uh, but he talked about the first time he uh, saw white kids like disobey their parents. And he was like, man, he was like, he was a kid. He's like, I couldn't believe it. They even cussed at their parents. And he's like, I'm trying to imagine if I would have like disobeyed my dad. And he painted this picture where his dad got really wide eyed and then just pulled out a gun and shot him, you know? And so like, this is the picture. Like, it's unfathomable. Like, this is insulting. This is rude. This is Old Testament. Do not disobey your parents or you could be stoned by the community. Like, this would have unsettled everyone. Everybody would have said, no son in their right mind would look at their dad with a specific, you know, imperative and say, nah. And so we don't get like the insult of this. But like a lot of other cultures do, like this idea is just unheard of. And so what do we have? We have a rude and insulting son, but that's not where it stops. Look at verse 29. It goes, but afterwards he changed his mind and went. Jesus is offering an invitation. Like like no matter how badly you have behaved or no matter how badly you have disrespected God, no matter the things that you have said out loud or in your heart, the grumblings of your life, no matter, you can change your mind. You can change your mind. Um, we, uh, my family uh, and I, my extended family, we went on a trip to Puerto Rico. And uh, one of the little things we did was called a river crawl. And uh, I kind of wondered why they called it a river crawl until I got there. And you have to like crawl up the mud through the rainforest to get to the river. And then we actually crawled up around the river to slide down these like natural slides in the river, which felt a little unsafe for me, but we had a life belt thing on. Um, And then we jumped off these cliffs under this waterfall. It was so fun. And then we had to crawl back down through the mud to get to this actually private dwelling. And this private dwelling had these little huts like you could change in. And man, you were a muddy mess. And so it was like, you have to change. 
And so Liv, uh, my, my second daughter, she uh, was in this little hut changing and this turkey, this, this male turkey, this tom, gets up in front of the hut, and it's just a curtain, and starts going crazy. Like starts like, I mean, I don't know what turkeys do. Like, I mean, he was, he was misbehaving. That's all I could tell you about this turkey. Like he was upset. Like that was his changing booth, maybe. I don't know. And Liv was like peeking out from the curtain, kind of scared. I mean, it was a big old turkey. And so I was like, well, this is my opportunity. I mean, I'm her father. And so I go over there to the, the big bad Tom and I'm like, hey, get out of here. And I start kind of yelling at it. It turns around and bows up to me. He's like, I'm not afraid of you. And I'm like, if you knew how many of you have been on my Thanksgiving dinner table, you would not be doing this. So I get closer and I kind of yell at him and he doesn't move. He buffs up bigger and gets louder. And now I'm insulted. And so I'm going to punt this turkey. And I mean, this turkey doesn't know our church has a turkey bowl. Like he doesn't know what he's messing with. And so I'm going to like punt this turkey. And all of a sudden, the sweetest, littlest old lady walks out of her house and I'm about to punt her pet. And she comes over and she, this turkey's all, you know, bowed up. She picks it up. It instantly starts cooing and like rubbing its head against her neck. And she goes on to explain that she saved this turkey after it survived a hurricane. And so I was about to punt her hurricane survival turkey that she's like laid down her life for. And what was worse, so the turkey's now like cooing and everyone loves the turkey. Everyone is petting the turkey. And I'm thinking, okay, the turkey's cool now. It was misbehaving before and you didn't see that. Liv is petting the turkey. And I was like, it was literally a peeping Tom, like literally. <laughs> but it, it changed its mind. It changed its mind. It stopped all the flexing and the bowing and all the insulting and the get out of my area. And it started cooing and everyone came around and everyone's disposition was different. And what we see here is this insulting, rude, unheard of, crazy, insulting son changes his mind. And what Jesus is saying, no matter how insulting you've been, no matter where you've gone, no matter how other people view you when you walk into church, if you change your mind, I will embrace you just like that cooing turkey. And so it starts off, we have this one son. And actually the word here, you know, he changed his mind. It's a compound word in the Greek that starts with meta and then melome. And so meta, it just means this, you know, it means big change or a location change or a direction change. And then it goes to the word mellow and it means to care or to be concerned for. And so it's start talking about something deep in your life that all of a sudden the cares and the concerns of your life turn and so elsewhere, this word in kind of different forms is described as repentance, that there's a turning in your life, that suddenly there's something different, like you were bowing up in an area of your life saying, this is mine, I'm going to do what I want, this is my day. And suddenly a sorrow wells up and a change happens. And Jesus is saying, that's the son I embrace. And so first we have this rude and insulting son 
Then we have another son. So look at verse 30. This other son, we have this put-together polite son, and he rejects the father. But look at it. Verse 30, he says, He went to the other son, and he said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. And matter of fact, it's more than that. Like, this is really respectful. It says, I go curios. And curios means Lord. And so it's like, Lord of my life, of course I go. My kids have never called me Lord. And I'm upset about it. But like, like, like this over above, Lord, of course I will go. But he did not go. And so it's like, what happened to all that Lord language? This disobedient, suck-up kid. Like, who likes this kid, you know? But so it keeps going, like he says, I will go, but he never intended to go. And so then verse 31, it says, which of the two did the will of the father? And they said the first. And so they're acknowledging something that there's something about follow through. There's something about a change of heart. There's something about like, it's not just words. And so Jesus is like, now I'm about to turn this on you because I'm going to explain to you who the sons are. And so look at verse 30, it goes on. Then Jesus said, truly I say to you. Now in the Greek, that word is amen. Now we say amen when we agree with something. And you know, I talked about this a couple weeks ago. I was like, man, you guys need to say amen more. Um, but you know, we say amen, we're like, yes, I agree with that. When Jesus says, that doesn't really convey what amen is. Other translations translate this to say, you know, something like, assuredly I say to you, or truly I tell you. But the idea is, I can confidently tell you that this is the truth from the Lord. With authority, this is what God says. This is what's true. And so Jesus says, like the, the King James is truly, truly, I say to you. I mean, it builds it where I can confidently tell you what's true. And then he describes, these are the two sons. And so I can confidently say, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom before you. He says, those uneducated people who are yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, the prostitutes that gather around, the tax collectors that I've let into my life and that have repented and changed, they've changed their minds. All those people you despise, they are rude and unput together. Their houses aren't in order. They're not the religious type. When they change their mind, they get into the kingdom first. And matter of fact, like the, the verb there, it means like they go before you. They show you the way to get in. They get there first and maybe in order to take your place. And so he says there, there, there's two sons. And then he's going to describe it even just a little bit more. Look, look at verse 32. Verse 32, he says, For John came to you, John the Baptist, in the way of righteousness, meaning in the right way. John came and he had the right way. Well, what did he do? And he says, and you did not believe him. So what did John preach? John preached, look at Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. Repent from your life. There's something wrong. There has to be a turning around. It's a similar word to what we just looked at. It's the same root word. Repent and turn around and follow for the kingdom of God is at hand and the kingdom of God has a new king. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so he says, look to John. And it gets really plain. You did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your mind and believe him. And so he says, believe what John told you. I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Believe and change your mind. Believe and repent. All you have to do is change your mind. 
And so the first story, bad sons. You know, how do we please God? He says, believe, change your mind. Believe, change your mind. There's a moment that there's a sorrow that wells up and there has to be something that meets that sorrow that you say, man, maybe my life is not my own. Maybe someone else has an owner. Maybe I need grace. And he's saying in that moment, follow through with it. Turn your life around and go. Those are the sons that the father embraces. And so wherever you've been, however insolent you've been, however insulting you've been to God, he says, man, if you just turn change your mind. I'll meet you right there. That's the first story. Second story, bad tenants. Now, I know a lot of you guys are renters, and so don't be this tenant, okay? Bad tenants. Bad tenants must acknowledge that they aren't owners, and they have to embrace grace. And so look at verse 33. He says, here another parable. And so he is basically saying, I'm going to tell you the same thing I just told you in a different way. And so I'm going to tell you in another way. I kind of told a story you can relate to about this, like two sons. Like A lot of people in that culture would have been like, yeah, I can relate to that. And so now he's going to say, I'm going to tell you another story you can relate to. Someone who owns a vineyard and has tenants working it, and the owner expects a return on that. Everyone would have said, well, of course. That makes sense. And so hear another parable. And so I want you to look at these verses, and I'm going to point out some things. And so in these verses, we see an owner. And so in this translation, it says the master of the house. Other translations will say the landowner. But what it's saying is there is someone who owns the vineyard. And we actually see a lot that they do. Like he built a wall. So he bought the land, he cultivated the land, he planted the vineyard, he built a wall and a tower to protect the vineyard from pests and thieves. He built a wine press to convert the fruit into sellable produce and a sellable product to make wine. He did everything you need to do to make it work, and then he looked for people to run it. He owns the wall, he owns the tower, he owns the land. He owns the grapes. He owns the wine press. And then he lends it out to tenants and he goes away. And so the expectation would have been obvious for everyone. They're going to work the land. It might take several years you know, for the grapes to grow, to get to a place where it's productive. And so they may not hear from the owner for a little while. And then he sends a messenger. And so first we see an owner. Then look at this word, tenant. Tenants don't own the vineyard. Tenants work it. They benefit from the land. They're expected to follow the wishes of the owner. They don't own it, and they must give it an account. They're responsible to follow the direction of the owner of the vineyard. Look, we see that word vineyard over and over. It's in this story. And, you know, Jesus could have used a lot of other things. He could have said there was an owner of a sheep flock, but he didn't. He could have said, man, there was an owner of, you know, someone who was growing wheat. You know, they found themselves in Kansas. You know, he could have, but he didn't. He could have said an owner of an Airbnb and, you know, like we have someone managing it. And so he could have conveyed the same idea with so many other examples, but he specifically picked an owner of a vineyard because he's talking to the elders and the chief priest of the people. And so he's painting a picture that goes back to Isaiah 5. 
And so you could just write that down. But in Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7, what you see is Jesus tells us a story. I'm sorry. Isaiah is recording what he hears from God. And he tells a story. And the stories of a vineyard that the Lord had planted. And so the owner, listen, it's going to sound really familiar. The owner buys a hill. He plowed the earth and he removed the stones out of it. He planted grapes in the vineyard. He built a tower and he hewned out a wine press. Sounds familiar. And then he expects it to bring forth good grapes. And then he goes on. It doesn't produce the grapes he wants. And he says, what more could I do for you? And then he plainly says, the vineyard is the house of Israel. And Israel's leaders refused to follow the Lord to produce justice. But instead they grew injustice. And so when he said vineyard, everybody would have said, man, that's analogy in the Bible for for us, for the house of Israel. And he, so he goes on and he says, you have refused to follow the Lord and cultivate good group. You think you're owners and you won't have to give an account. But the tenants, you, us, me, will one day give an account to God about the fruit of our lives. And so it's drawing us all in, not just them, but us too. You know, Oftentimes when we read this, it doesn't really catch us because we don't really think about how much God has established our lives before we ever thought about it. Like, like we can see it in the sense like, oh, sure, he built a fence. Oh, yeah, he built a tower. That was probably hard. Oh, yeah, he removed a bunch of rocks and cultivated and made a wine press. Sure, I can see maybe he did all of that. But like when you review your life, like the house that you were born in, the air in your lungs, the talents and ambitions that you have, the Bible is going to say you are a tenant of your life and there is a master of your life. And all throughout history, other people have said in different ways, like, yeah, if we just come out of like your life is an accident and it just kind of happened to come together, then you are your own person. But the problem with that is nothing matters. Like we don't like that. But if your beginnings had no consequence, like they just happened and you're in, like when you die, you just go away and it doesn't matter. I mean, you're going to be forgotten. Then it means your life doesn't matter. If you do a bunch of good things, it's not going to make a difference in the cosmos. One day the sun is going to go out. No one's going to remember what you did. It won't matter. But if you have an owner, if you have a creator, if Psalms 139 is true and you were knit together in your mother's wound and the days of your life have been seen and, and God is working out things and he says things like we have in Acts 17 that you know he's not far from us, but that we can reach out and maybe know him and he's there, that God is knowable, then there's an account that we must give. And so this tenant language, we don't know it. It actually upsets us a lot. We think we've built our lives. We think we've pulled our lives up from our bootstraps. We think we're self-made and sufficient. Therefore, we get to decide the direction and investments of our life. Or we think the opposite. It's my life. I can do whatever I want. If I want to squander it and waste it, it's no one's business but mine. Unless God actually owns it. And so he's looking at the elders and the chief priests. And he's saying, there's an ownership and something that comes due from what I've entrusted you with. And, and it gets harder. 
This is saying we all start out thinking we're owners and we tell God, no, I won't go. And it says that we all must come to a moment that we change our minds. Like we must know that we are dependent upon grace. Like my home is not mine. It is grace lent to me and the fruit that God wants grows out of expectant, humble, graceful surrender to him. My career is not mine. It is grace lent to me. My money is not mine. It is grace lent to me. My marriage is not mine. My body is not mine. My ambitions and hopes are not mine. They are God's grace lent to me. And the fruit that God wants grows out of an expectant, humble, graceful surrender to him. Now, I I left out a few details. And so look, look at verse 33 to 37. You also see these servants. And and so these servants, like these are people who show up that the master sends to remind the tenants, you're not an owner. You owe something with your life. And look at the words of what they do to the servants. They, They beat them. They stone them. They murder them. Which, I mean, how do you want to be like the third servant in, in, you know, in that row? Like, hey, man, remember Bill? Like, man, it didn't work out for him. We need a different plan. And, and so it is clear that he's talking about the leaders of Israel and the prophets that went to remind God's people that God is God and that he has an expectation of their life. And the religious leaders, you know, we see in the New Testament, man, they always killed them. They always mistreated him. He's saying, you're the same way. Because remember, John the Baptist came with a message of repentance You're not an owner. And so this insults us. But there's another word, son. And and so there's also a son. And so suddenly we tie into this idea of the first story. There's a son who comes with the same message that reminds him that they're not an owner. And look at what happens in verse 38. In verse 38, when the tenants saw the son... They said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. They killed the son because they wanted to be owners of their life. And then he says, what do you think about that? In verse 40 and 41, they said, those wretches, man, they need to be, they need to be dealt with. They need to be killed. They need to be thrown off the land and new people brought in. And then he turns to him and he He talks about this cornerstone, the direction and measure of their life. But this enters into something that we have to deal with. There is more grace in your life than you're admitting. The foundations of your life were built before you had any choice. You didn't build it. It was built for you. You don't own your life. If you have a creator, you're not your own. And that means the choices are not just up to your whims and your wants, but there's a demand upon the fruit of your life. And we all have to come to a place that we say, man, I need to change the way I think. And when God convicts my life, there are many micro moments that I need to change the way I think about it. I either turn and surrender or I turn to grip it and say I'm an owner. And I start to despise the Son of God and the Word of God because it keeps telling me, you're a tenant and you need grace. It tells us something else. We hate grace. There is something in us that just wants to reject it. I was still doing student ministry, and um, 
we had this camp, and we did a camp by ourselves. We just had a couple churches, like three churches joined together to do camp, and we tried to make it, you know, kind of all, you know, streamlined, you know, where what we kind of did, the activities kind of build up and culminate in the service. And so the last night, you know, that's, a, that's kind of the whole week is culminating this way. We preach the gospel every day, but it's all culminating here. And one of the student pastors, like, he must have different kids than I had. He's like, what if we let the kids plan everything for the last night? And I'm like, well, that's a horrible idea. But, but I mean, I felt bad saying it. So I was like, yeah, that's cool. What is wrong with you, you know? And so we broke up teams and they all planned like these different elements. You know, one team planned a prayer walk and you kind of walk through. And that prayer walk eventually led to a place where they chose it to wash everyone's feet coming into worship. And a student-led band planned the worship set and all the slides and different elements that were going to happen in there. And we actually had students share testimony and all this stuff. And they picked the students to do it. Like it was all out of our hands. You know, we had one of our leaders give a short little devotional, um, a short little gospel message. And so, I, you know, I had to go through it. So I go through the prayer walk and I'm like, OK, these kids aren't idiots, but we'll give them time, you know. And then suddenly we come up on the hill and it's an open air pavilion. And man, just all of these students, I was in the back, they're in there just worshiping, student band, and they're just worshiping. And before I get there, like there's a section where these students are washing your feet. And man, it's camp. I mean, that is gross, you know. I mean, people wearing flip-flops and sweating and so all kinds of stuff sticking to their feet. And I, I, I'm not very proud of my feet. My, my second toe is way longer than my big toe and it just doesn't look right. My third toe is actually longer than my big toe. And so I don't know why we call it the big toe. And so I, I just don't like people seeing my feet. And so I was like, I'm just going to skip that. I go to walk past that and I felt a conviction from the Lord that I've rarely felt. And it, like on a stupid decision, like I just felt in my heart that God said, oh, it's good enough for your kids, not good enough for you. And so I go sit down and this, this little girl, her name was um, Annie Arnone, sweet, tiny little girl. I mean, she's like the size of a two liter. And uh, I mean, not joking, not anything. Uh, I remove my shoes. She pulls my socks off starts washing my feet. And I just remember, the, I was blown away. The water was hot. She washed my feet like in between my toes. Like, I mean, like, come on, man. Um, and I remember feeling like I want to do something for her. How do I repay her? How do I make this right? Like, I feel indebted to her. Like, it, the sweetness that is coming off her, I just something was overflowing in my soul. And so all of a sudden, she dried my feet. I slipped my shoes on. And I go, and I'm about to walk into the pavilion. And I stop, and I can't walk in. And I heard this in my soul. You hate grace. You love to give grace to people because you think it says something about you. But the grace that I give you is dependent upon nothing of yourself and you can never repay it. Nothing can repay the death of my son. There is something inside of you that despises grace. I wept. And so we struggle all our lives and I still struggle thinking, man, if I do this, God will love me a little bit more. I have a bad day and I don't just come to him with open arms of repentance and saying, I need you like a, like a little boy who needs his father. I go try to kind of work it up and I read my Bible a little bit more and I do all these different things when all I need is to change the way I think and turn to God and say, I need your grace. It insults me, but I need your grace. The prostitutes and the tax collectors go before you. 
And so Jesus, when he's looking at this, he's saying there is more grace in your life than you admit. You're not an owner. And then he ends this story quoting Psalms 118 that the people had already quoted. And so he ends the story saying this. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. This was marvelous. And it was the Lord's doing marvelous in our eyes. And so a cornerstone is a stone that's set and it sets the dimensions and directions of the entire house. And so he's saying you have rejected the foundation of your life. And he's saying what you just said when they said, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. You're rejecting the foundation of your life, which is me. Jesus is saying, I am the cornerstone and you're rejecting it. And some of the verses that come out of Psalms 118, it'll be up on the screen. It says this. Like, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. If you feel like you're an owner of your life, there are so many days you will never rejoice in. But if you are a tenant of your life and you're getting better than you deserve, you can look at God and say, it's more than I deserve. You have made this day, so I will follow. And so we see that in verse 24. In verse 28 of Psalms 118, it says, You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. The people just did that. The, the, the sons that were rude and crude, you know, the prostitutes and the tax collectors, all the people, the uneducated, but they just came around, you know, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, and it offended you. Or verse 29 of Psalms 118, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endures forever. You know, can you rejoice in what God is doing in your life even on really difficult days, a barren days when nothing is growing? Can you see God as your owner? Can you praise him for the direction, dimensions of your life? Do you celebrate his enduring mercy even on really hard days? And the question is, will you be a tenant and say, whatever you gave me today, man, I, it's hard, but I'm just going to choose to cultivate what you gave me. Or are you still trying to be an owner? So the people came around, verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The people shouted as Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And the religious leaders called it blasphemy. So Jesus tells us two stories to say. There are the sons who changed their minds and who are getting in. How are you hanging on to the elements of your life? You know, so verse 27, it says, God is the Lord. And so this is verse 27. God is the Lord and he has given us light. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Jesus is Lord. Jesus, the light of heaven, who's come to earth. Jesus, the God made man, was bound to a cross but he let us do it. He was the owner's son who entered in and we killed him for it. But because he entered in willingly and died willingly, his inheritance has been pulled apart so you can have a part of the inheritance of God. You can be a son that is embraced by the father if you change your mind. Let me pray for us. Lord, we see words like this, believe, repent, change your mind. And Lord, they're not just for people who are, they're definitely for people who are saying, man, I don't know about Jesus, but man, something in my heart is, 
is chirping. I need to do something about it. And the message to you would be change your mind. Turn. Say, Lord, I don't know exactly everything about you, but for this moment, I don't know why. I actually believe that you are who you say you are, and I hope you can save like you say you can. Will you embrace a son like me who was rude and insolent and cursed you and did all the things on whims and decisions just for his life? Man, if that's you and you're kind of in that for the first time, man, we invite you to join someone in the back just for prayer. They want to pray for you and maybe explain what's going on with that. But it's for every believer, every son, and every week and every day, the Spirit presses in on us and it's pulling things away and it's a choice. Will you be an owner or will you be a tenant? And I'm just begging you, open your hands and trust the resources of the Lord and give them back and say, man, I don't want to be a tenant today. This is scary, but I'm going to be a tenant. Change the way you think. And so, Lord, I pray that you would uh, we'd carry something, whatever it is. As we come to communion, um, as believers, we celebrate this happens because of the blood and body of Jesus. And so we start on the bread side and pieces torn away. And we remember that your body was broken for us. And then we dip it into wine or to grape juice. And we remember that your blood was shed for us. And because of that, the inheritance that you had, the inheritance of the kingdom of God is made available to us. And so we can do it in real worship with broken and contrite hearts, with wonder of what you might do and what you can do. And all I bring is this. And so, Lord, we need help in Jesus name. Amen. Come when you're ready. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas, please visit our website at fcclawrence.com.